Hey there, boils and ghouls. Welcome to this week's episode of Hollow Weekly. Nick here with a very special guest, Heather Wixon, to talk about her new book, Monster Makeup and Effects, Volume 2. Thank you so much for taking time to come on the show, Heather. Oh, thank you so much for having me. I am so excited to, to talk with you today. out i was i was telling you you know i'm a chatty kathy and i could talk about monster makeup and effects for hours and um i wasn't kidding but we will keep this for the listeners sake we'll keep this to about an hour <laughs> this won't gotcha. be this will be this will be a special eight part episode but it but it very could be um so just kicking off with the book uh this is this is the second one in the series um how did this series come about yeah so all of this um you know everybody always like i think because we're so used to instant gratification like um you know, when I tell people that all of this started about six and a half years ago, they're like, wait, what? Um, which I honestly can't even believe myself. Um, but yeah, so originally, um, and I'll try to make this sort of the short version of the story. Um, but so years ago, I used to do um, this sort of like week long celebration where um, I was always like sort of uh, spotlighting the work of Stan Winston Studios mm -hmm. um, just because I was always such a huge fan and they were really gracious in terms of working with me and things like that. And so the first couple of years that I did it, like it was just sort of standard, like here's some cool effects, here's some cool BTS. I've got a couple, you know, cool stories. That was that. And then the last year I did it, I really wanted to do a piece celebrating Stan himself because mm -hmm. I just hadn't done that yet and i just felt like it was like time to kind of do that and so i started you know the people i was interviewing i started asking them like you know more personal questions you know about working with stan and what his you know influence on their lives were and things like that and one of the things that was interesting was like somebody that i was interviewing they were saying you know it, they're like you know nobody ever asks us about this kind of stuff and it just sort of wow. hit me that when people were talking to special effects artists generally it was always like well how did you make this and what did you what materials did you use to make this and you know it was very about their work as opposed to their lives and for me like their experiences and the things that they went through in order to make all of these amazing things like that's part of film history to me and absolutely yeah and i just felt i was like you know i really wanted to kind of give them all a chance to tell their stories um in the ways that they hadn't had before and so when I originally set out, I was like, okay, if I get 20 artists to talk to me, that's great. Um, and I kind of gotten to know like some of the folks like over the years, cause like when I first started working out here in LA in 2009, I actually did work for a special effects shop. So I got to know some of the folks through there. Um, and then, you know, through the Stan Winston stuff and just articles and different press ops, like over the years, like I just got to know more and more people. And so once I hit my initial 20, I was like, okay, cool. Like I did it. And, but I still had like other people that I'd, I'd reached out to who were like, yeah, I, I'd like to do this. And me, I'm just, I'm very bad at like cutting myself off from working. So I will just <laughs> keep working, um, which is a problem. And so it was just like, I just kept getting like more and more interviews and I was like, oh, you know, I really want to keep going with this. And so when that initial book came out, which was called monster squad, um, mm -hmm. I didn't love my publisher. Um, there was just a lot of not so awesome things about it. Like the biggest being that the book was released and I didn't even know it. 
Yes. I'm serious. I was on a trip back home in Chicago and I was like, it was November and I was like, oh, you know, I should probably like get ready to start like promoting the book. So I was like, oh, I wonder if it's on Amazon yet, just so I can like for pre-orders. And I looked and it was sitting there and I was oh like, my gosh. And I was like, what? And like, I don't expect because like they're a pretty prominent publisher for like a lot of like new writers and things like that. Right. But so I'm not expecting to be like, you know, treated like I'm a superstar or anything like it was my first book. I get it. But at the same time, like to release the book and not tell me, I'm like, what the hell? Like that, that was, is bonkers. Yeah. And so like to promote that book, I was already like behind oh. at that point. And yeah, and it was just like, just a lot of things I didn't really love about that process. And so I was like, all right, I want to keep going, but I don't want to do it with this person. So for a while, I had actually uh, was putting together this project with Fangoria back when they were still doing book publishing, but 2020, their whole business, there sort of recalibrated um, and they were no longer going to move forward with doing book publishing. So then I was like, okay, at that point I'd collected like almost 80 interviews and I was like oh my god what am I gonna do right. um and thankfully um it was actually through um Robert Kurtzman who I ended up connecting with my current publisher who is Michael over at AM Inc and um it was just one of those things where he had already put out a few different books with different special effects artists um they'd all had really good experiences with him in fact like right now he actually did the reprint and re-release of Kane Hodder's autobiography and you know we just hit it off and he got what I wanted to do and he wanted to treat it like something that actually mattered which was nice <laughs> and um so what we what I was able to do in the meantime is that those initial 20 interviews from the first book because of the deal with Fangoria they had acquired the rights for those interviews and when everything sort of fell apart over at Fango um they actually gave me back the rights oh thank god <laughs> that, is great. For those. So oh, they that is great they basically paid for to get those interviews and then when everything fell apart they just gave them to me so it was like this gift <laughs> bingo um, you know and it's like i believe me there's a lot of not great things you can say about dallas sonnier um, we used to work with him yeah i i actually used to work with him back in the day too before all of this wow. um because i worked used to work for a distribution company and so Um, There's a lot of not great things you could say about that, but I will say that in the process of dealing with this book stuff, uh, that he was 100% in my corner and gave me back everything I needed to be able to move forward. That's awesome. And, you know, for that, I'm grateful. Um, And so we were able to, like, for each of these new books, um, each book will have at least 15 new interviews, and then it's got five of sort of the reworked original interviews. Um, and I say at least 15 because I've now, I think I've gotten, I think like 83 interviews total. No way. Yeah. So I think the last two books will probably have a, like a few more than 20 um, because that's just sort of the nature of how it all worked out, um, which drives like my, my attention to detail a little crazy where I'm like, well, <laughs> I should just push it to 25 then. But I was like, no, no, no. Let's just, let's just cut it where it is. I mean, there's a few people I really want to still talk to, but. I don't know if it'll ever happen and things like that, but, um, but yeah, so that's basically sort of how it all worked out. And then, so like last year we were able to put out the first volume of monsters makeup and effects. Um, and it was, it was really great just like to sort of be able to like get these stories out there, um, in this new way. 
Um, although I will say, and I'm not trying to be snarky, but there <laughs> might be another book that came out this year involving somebody who was involved with book one who has a very similar approach. And I was reading oh. this blurb where they were saying, well, nobody's ever done a book like this. And I was like, you mean the one that you did an interview with me for four years ago? No, I'm you're the- right. Nobody's done that before. I'm here for the snarkiness. I'm, I'm ready to buy. I'm ready to buy. I got my deuces ready. <laughs> <laughs> it was just one of those when I read that, I was like, are you kidding me right now? Come on. Yeah, and that, it's that fine. Bites. Like I was really super bummed out when I saw that, that announced, like, I was just like, oh my God, because it's like, with this huge publisher and it's like all I remember those tweets I remember those yeah, tweets that's part of the reason I, why I wanted to have you I wanted to talk to you on the, about this because well, like, you know yeah fuck that we ain't selling for that we, it's we just weird like when you've spent so long doing this and the per one of the people involved with it has been part of it for a significant chunk of that time and then they're in your first book that comes out and then like a year later they're releasing a similar I just it felt weird I just had and a it's very fine. Yeah, it's, I, but it's you know I know what I've done over the last you know few years so exactly focus on that exactly and you got you're sitting on gold I'm I, reading these interviews these are these are great great interviews by the way these oh, are I absolutely love it because I'll and I'll, I'll be honest my you know my fiance is a reader she's you know she's she's a fellow author uh, she's the reason why I actually like started reading before I met her Heather like I ha- I I swear to God I was like. I always thought I was a good reader, but she was like, oh, honey, no, <laughs> like we, we, we had some work. We had some work to do. So being able to like pick up a book like this, like Monster Makeup Effects Volume 2, I, at first I was looking at all the names and it's, a, it's what I love about it is, you know, being being someone new to reading, having the pictures is always great. But it's, 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 it's fascinating. And being able to just like I was just bouncing around like, oh, what like looking at what the all these artists worked on. Because these aren't these aren't small student films by any. These are like the biggest movies ever made, and just looking at what they made and 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 reading their chapters and getting these insights, like like this book is it has to be on every horror fan's shelves easily. Well, thank you. Yeah, and it's it's interesting too because you know I've had some people saying like, oh, you know, um, sort of the way that I presented everything in these books, but you know, is it feels a little like removed where it's it's very quote heavy. But that was intentional for me because for me, I want it to feel like it's almost like a situation where like you're sitting in a room and you're listening to this artist just talk about their lives because it's not, you know, and I've said this before and I've said this on social media and things like that. Like none of this is about me. Like, yeah, it's super cool. I get to write books and it's super cool that I get to put them out there and that I get to like, you know, celebrate these people. But honestly, for me, all of this is about them. Mm -hmm. And so for me, you know, I, I know writers who just have to put in the big super superfluous words because they got to sound super smart and, you know, right. and everything. I, that isn't me. And it's never going to be me. I can use those words <laughs> um, and I can use them well, but it's not me. And for me, right. this is about I, I'm trying to pull myself out of it as much as I can. So that way it really is the story of these people's lives like you don't need me to try to impress you with my vocabulary when these stories themselves are so impressive and it's the reason i want people to pick up the book you know i'm i feel really grateful that these people entrusted me so but at the same time none of it really is about me it almost feels weird like that like when i'm out there promoting these things where i'm like it really should be these people talking to everybody but you know that's like can be impossible because like money these people are still working and things like that like so schedules can be crazy but yeah it's just for me it's like i just want people to have that experience where they almost feel like they're having like a fireside chat 
with the yes. artists and they just get it, this glimpse into their lives in ways that they never have before. It reads so well. Like I'm not like I'll tell the reader, I'll tell the listeners how I listen to this book. So I was scrolling through TikTok and someone someone used a soundtrack from there's a uh, a video game uh, Halo ODST. I don't know if you're ever if you're familiar with that one, but it has this like noiry jazzy kind of soundtrack. Oh, I haven't to it. heard it. And in the beginning of it, it's actually like rain, and then like this jazz kind of comes, this noiry jazz. And I was like, I was like, ooh, that'd be great to listen to Heather's book too. So I put that on low. And what you're saying about it just feeling like a fireside chat, like I connected with, I connected with what you said with that 100 percent because I felt like it feels like you were talking to your friends. It's the weirdest thing. Like I seriously, I was reading this book going, like, do I need more friends? <laughs> like this, this feeling I get when I read these. Uh, these interviews like it makes me feel like really happy and like like engaged with it and like you know what i love about these these artists is like they all know each other they all know each other and so when when they're talking about their work like they'll just they'll just throw out like first names like (laughs) you know they're like oh yeah when i was working on you know the thing you know uh rick and bob and uh, you know and jonathan was there and you're like (laughs) like those are all like big people but they're they, they the way they talk about it you really feel the camaraderie in this industry and they, 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 the way they talk about it, they, and they don't talk about it in a way like, like you were saying how like some writers would use these big words to make them sound subic. These guys, they don't do it either. They're just, they're just no bullshit. Get your hands dirty talking about this, but they talk about it in a way where like, you know, I have very, very little knowledge of actually doing prosthetic makeup, just like a little bit, you know, growing up. But like, when these guys talk about you know the stuff that they've did they they talk about it in a way where you instantly get it and you don't need to like you know look up what they're talking about like you 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 immediately know like what it is they're talking about how they're working on it and how they're bringing their craft to it and it's just it's just very conversational and very easy and fun to fun to read i wanted like i didn't want it to feel like an academic book necessarily or right. Something that would be hard to read. Cause like, honestly, like the one thing that really made me happy with like, especially back when the first book came out was that there was people that I know that like, they were reading the book with their kids. Really? Yeah. Because they had kids who were like interested in monsters and things like that. So I wanted it to be accessible. So like, if they want to read it with their parents, they can, but if like, there's like some 10 year old out there who's dreaming about making monsters, like they could pick this up. Although I will admit once we, once I eventually incorporate the Steve Johnson chapter back in, that may not be what I would call the best chapter for children. Um, and I say that lovingly and Steve knows because he makes, he makes jokes about it all the time, but um, you know, he's very open about uh, his, his journey in, in the makeup effects industry and, you know, drugs are tough man (laughs) (laughs) i loved i loved the dedication in the beginning of the book to all the monster kids um and i'm curious growing up what were some of the monsters that caught your eye that made you think like oh this genre has quite a bit to offer with these you know unique designs yeah i think for me like some of the earliest movies that like i can remember seeing and that sort of challenged me and freaked me out and made me fall in love with all this stuff like um you know and this is a story that i tell quite a bit but like you know I grew up I'm, I'm a bit older so I grew up in the 80s uh born in the late 70s grew up in the 80s so and my mom was a single mom so babysitters were just generally expensive so you know honestly like she just took me to everything like I, any kind of movie so like when I was three years old I'm sitting in a theater watching American Werewolf in London at three 
Yeah, Follow. I wouldn't recommend it for three-year-olds. <laughs> That's not really quite age appropriate, but I, you know, I was there and stuff like that. And, you know, so it's like, I, I just feel like movies have always been sort of part of me. And like, there's things I can remember, like the first time seeing the thing and just being absolutely terrified because I bought in to everything that I saw in that movie. And I'd already had sort of a fear of dogs at that point. Um, because one of my neighbor's dogs actually attacked me. No. Yeah, we had a neighbor dog. We had a neighbor whose dog like was just really bad. And like one time he got off his chain, and I just happened to be walking in the wrong place oh. at the wrong time. And then another time, the same dog, like a few years later, I was playing in front of their house. And usually, like the dog was kind of further back, so you were okay. But like, I dropped something, and it like rolled that way. And I thought I had enough room to get it. Oof. Nope. And so he got me again. So I had a terrible fear of dogs. So the thing just completely like exacerbated that to like new heights where I was just like, oh my God, I never want to see a dog. Now I have two dogs. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but you know, it was like, it took a long time. And to be honest, I'm still nervous, like around like bigger dogs. Um, but you know, it was like, and then I remember like the first time seeing, seeing like the Salem's Lot miniseries mm -hmm. um, and the character of Barlow um, for me, I'd never, like I, I knew who Dracula was at that point, mm -hmm. um, but he looked so regal and so human. Where Barlow to me looked so alien in a way because he was blue and mangled and like so creature-like, and I, he terrified me, he gave me nightmares. But I was so fascinated by him, um, and so I think that's why, like, I've always loved the Salem's Lot miniseries from Toby Hooper because that was just like that movie imprinted on me at a really young age. Um, I, I do think vampires have a 30% increase in terror if they're bald. I <laughs> just say with Nosferatu, if they're bald, it just freaks me out, man. I don't know. They, they have that animalistic look like you're talking about. I'm like, I don't trust you. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. You mentioned earlier that you, you uh, had worked at a, an effects warehouse before, right? I did. Yeah. I how, was, at... how was that? It was an, it was really cool. I think for me because it was like an intro, like it was sort of like my entry into the world effects. Um, I was mostly working in the office, so it was, I wasn't technically like in the shop that much. Like actually, there'd be times where we'd be really slammed, and I'd have to go in the back to help like run appliances or like mix blood and things like that. But I never got like oh. into like the nitty gritty of it. Um, I will say though that I did um, the first year I lived here um, when I was kind. I was like. I remember it was like Halloween and I was like, oh, I really want to like do something fun. And like, I did this really crazy version of like Carrie where like I used gelatin blood on my dress because I just didn't like the way it soaked in because it didn't feel vibrant enough. So I made my own gelatin blood to cover cool. my dress in. And then I, you know, I just did regular blood like on my head and everything like that or on the wig. Actually, no, I used gelatin on the wig too, which I don't recommend because it was really sticky and then drunk people like, we're trying to eat it because as soon as you tell them it's gelatin, they think you're covered in jello. It was weird, oh, um, but it was cool. <laughs> it looked awesome. Um, but it was mostly like working in the office. So I was, but it was really cool because it was like, I was getting to work with like studios and get to understand the industry from that perspective in terms of like putting together like proposals and bids and budgets and talking with big producers. Like there was a day when like, I'm not Shyamalan came into our offices and I was like, holy crap, this is like a real thing. Like I got to know Robert England pretty well through my time working there because he was pretty close with my boss. And 
um, you know, so it was really cool in that way. And actually it was interesting too, because when I started there and I was thinking about that now, um, one of the things that I did was I actually did a profile on him, like before I actually started working there about his life, because he, um, I guess I could talk about it. Cause like, it's weird. Cause it didn't end well. Um, but it was good for a few years, but I, I'd worked for this, uh, effects artist whose name was Robert Hall and he used to run almost human effects. And, um, he had done a movie years, a couple of years before that called lightning bug, which was actually pretty semi-autobiographical. And it had like Laura Prepon in it. And I'm forgetting there was like a kid who was like in a TV show at that time. And I'm totally blanking on his name, but it was like sort of semi-autobiographical. And so I thought it'd be fun to just talk to him about like his life and stuff like that, um, which we did because he had just around that time, he had just released the first late to rest. And so, you know, so I kind of got to know him that way. And then when um, I think they were getting ready to start on some big show, I don't remember what it was, but that's when they brought me into the office because their gal had gone on maternity leave and just never came back which maybe should have been my inkling of like oh maybe this isn't going to be the greatest place <laughs> but it was good for a while right um and you know so it was like it was interesting to like get to know me because like rob was a guy who was like really ingrained in like the effects world sometimes for better and sometimes for worse um but you know it was believe me there was a lot of interviews i did where i'd be like oh yeah i used to work at an effects shop and they'd be like oh where did you work and i was like almost human and i would say nine times out of ten everybody was like oh I'm so sorry and I was like I know I know it's fine um and I don't mean to speak because like I unfortunately Rob passed away last year very out of the blue um he had sort of a rough go of it over the last 10 years with some addiction issues and I don't think when he passed that it necessarily had to do with that per se but I don't think that those years were very kind to his body and it was very sudden um and that was kind of one of the reasons I ended up leaving there because it was just there was a lot of bad stuff going on but um it was cool to kind of get to understand like the intricacies of like the business aspects of it because for me like when I started writing about like horror just in general it was just like hey I'm a fan like so I was kind of removed from it so getting to like correspond with studios and things like that like at that point like they were still working on like the tv show fringe and so like, I remember one day I had to go and do a delivery over at like, I think it was the Sony lot, if I'm not mistaken. And so I get in there and, you know, they're like, oh, go see so-and-so in this building or whatever. And, and then I was in the elevator, you know, getting ready to like leave the building and go to a different building. And I look over and like, and again, hasn't aged super well, but like it was Joss Whedon standing in the elevator, like two feet from me. And at that <laughs> point I was just like, oh my God, like, you're like I Buffy. Even, oh, I man. know. Yeah, I was just and and, and and Rob actually had worked on Buffy and Angel. Um, really? Yeah. Wow. Throughout his career, so it, it actually, if you remember, there was an episode of Angel where they had the poker night when, um, the guy who had the nightclub he like held like a poker night, and I actually have a poker chip from that episode. Oh, that's cool. Which is pretty neat. Um, and unfortunately, I know he passed away a few a few years ago too. Um, but yeah, so it was just like, oh my God, that's sweet. And then I get there and like the production manager was like, Hey, you want to come and look at all the sets and stuff? And I was like, is this like how it works? <laughs> so I'm like walking around with like these really awesome, like fringe sets and stuff. And, you know, so it was just a really great way to sort of immerse myself in a lot of aspects of the industry that I had no idea about, you know, wow. from a professional standpoint, which is like why I, I have sort of this ability, like when I see things where I'm like, I can understand like 
some of the the decisions behind them. Mm-hmm. Like I don't have to agree with them, but I get why they were made, if that makes sense, you know. Right. And so having that perspective actually, I really think helped me in a lot of ways. That's, um, that's you know. what I wanted to. That's what I wanted to ask was did did that experience. Did, did any of that translate into like writing these books? Like when you sit down to talk, you know, with these creators, like you're like, you've worked in the shop, like, you know, so yeah. you know the lingo. No, absolutely. And I think also too, like being able to understand the process, the processes more like in terms of what goes into like creating something where it's like, you know, you want to just talk about like, Oh, like we're going to like give somebody like a big swollen eye. And like, that seems super easy. And it's like, well, actually it's probably one of like the more intricate, like facial things you can do because you have to blend the seams. So seem, you know, and like, are you going to build up on their face around it? Or are you just going to like try to like blur the, you know, blur the seams. So hopefully they just kind of blend into the actual skin and things like that. So like having, you know, that experience and being able to learn about that kind of stuff. I think also for me too, just was able to sort of free me up in a way where I didn't necessarily have to focus on the process um during right. these interviews because i kind of got it to a degree and honestly i know believe me and through these interviews too that i learned so much especially as like how materials evolved over the years and like because there's like a point when like you know silicone wasn't a thing that got used in the effects industry and then all of a sudden it did and people and you know and now it's like one of the pretty much one of the go-to materials when you're doing anything i thought that was one of the funniest parts of the book when um oh the name escapes me but when they were working on slither during... oh, todd masters yes todd masters chapter when they when they had to buy all the sex toys <laughs> yeah and he's like i was giving <laughs> someone a tour and there was just a mountain of you know <laughs> private parts just sitting on the, yes. on the thing there because that's a problem i never think because i love slither but no, now knowing that during production they had to have a mountain of sex toys to, to make it happen just kind of makes it even more awesome, like kind of funny. It's a whole <laughs> yeah. new appreciation for Slither for sure. And yeah. Todd is awesome. Like for me, I, one of the reasons I, I always wanted to talk to him was just because of Demon Knight. Like I could still remember like the first time watching Demon Knight. And in fact, we just rewatched it a few days ago. But just the the demon birth scenes and like just how different it felt from anything else that was going on in 90s horror. And it just always stood out to me and like putting those people like on those crazy shoes to do the demon performances. Like um, I just always loved it. That was actually how I met him is I did a, a demon night retrospective years ago. Really? Yeah. And because of that, I was able to like ask him like, oh, would you want to be a part of this? And he was like, yeah, sure. Sign me up. So. And he's done a lot of amazing work. I'm like, he created the Borg Queen, you know, which is still probably one of the most cool, like one of the most iconic and like awesomest images to come out of Star Trek movies. What was cool about when he was talking about that and with all the artists, artists in, in, in the in the book was he was like referencing like what Savini did on Friday. Yeah. <laughs> like, like, like the fact that he was able to take something like they did, like, you know, you know, what was it like 15 and I remember a decade before, you know, before that. And like those rules still applied. Yeah. <laughs> I love the, the, the building of that. And he um, there, I think, I think it was this chapter where he called it a handshake between the practical and the digital. Yeah. Um, and I, that, that's something I, I really wanted to ask you about because clearly we're both big monster lovers. And uh, before, when me and my my former partner like uh, we ran a Facebook page, it had like three hundred thousand fans on it. It was really big. But when we split the show, 
I kept the name of the podcast. He kept the page and changed the name. But we would ask questions all the time and talk about, um, you know, practical effects and digital effects. And there was, there seems to be, and I'm curious what your take is on this. Uh, uh, I'll call it a blind animosity towards um, digital effects. Yeah, and, I agree. And I, I personally, I really love them. Like I, like I remember after seeing Scott Pilgrim versus the World going out and buying green screen and learning After Effects, like. You know, yeah. I remember that being a big thing. Um, but I really love because I feel like there's a there's a big portion of horror fans who hate it. But then you go and you read what these like maestros are doing of, of their art and they embrace it and they were embracing it really, really early. Um, so how do you feel about like the hate of digital when these masters of the industry are Blending that, I love that. I, lo- I really love the handshake reference because to me that is what it is. It's like, hey, we'll both we'll both make it work to serve the story. Yeah, no, it's it's interesting because like you know I'm somebody who's always going to champion practical effects, and I think right. there are so many cases where you can see it where you just you need the practical effects. But and this is something I mentioned like in a different interview, but like I I think that there is a practicality to digital because like to be really honest, I could not imagine being intimidated or fearing a character like Thanos if it was Josh Brolin in makeup I'll be really honest you know what I mean like it would look silly I think in a way because it would just be like Josh Brolin being purple and not really you know what he likes to that it's like you know when when people kind of like you know crap all over Marvel for using a lot of digital effects but I'm like but for the, the the level of fantasy that they're playing with in like their medium like they have to you just have to um whereas like you know I I think the thing is for me is like I think so many people don't understand um that so many of their favorite practical effects like you know gags have come to life with the help of digital and they don't get it because digital is always going to be there to erase the wires and like clear up those scenes and make things pop in a way that they just can't do practically and it's like and then you have people who like will go back and be like oh well if you look at this like movie from 1982 like oh you can see all this stuff and it it has a certain charm but like you know people want to like nitpick those details and then like well you know but you look at what's happening now and I'm like the reason it looks so great now is because you have technology that can go in there and change these things um I remember like I think it was when for sort of an interesting example was I remember fans actually got mad at Don Coscarelli for digitally removing the wires from the phantasm balls when they did the 4k, which like for me, honestly, like, first of all, if he wants to do that, that's cool. It's not like, you know, Spielberg taking out guns and putting walkie talkies in, which changes the dynamic of a scene. It's just wire removal, which frankly, when he'd made phantasm in 79, if that, if he had access to that technology back then, he would have used it because of course you would. That's going to sell the effect. Um, so I always think that's always interesting that like, I, I think a lot of people, they get upset about things that I don't think they quite understand fully, like what they're really there for. Um, like for example, like, you know, a movie last year that used a ton of great practical effects was Malignant, but there's also a heck of a lot of digital going on yes. at the same time. And so I think that there is a way that they they really do work together. And of course, there's like instances where, you know, digital and effects are at war, which is like something like the Thing remake or prequel make or pre-make or whatever. Yeah. 
um, you know, which Studio ADI has talked about, you know, a lot over the years in terms of just how they got completely screwed That's a over heartbreaking by the, one. Yeah, by the digital department because it was a digital department who was there to show off what they could do, not enhance the work of the practical effects. And that's why it doesn't work, you know? Yeah. So it's, it's tough because it's like, you know, of course you want things to be in camera and you want to be able to like, look, see them and things like that. But there is, there is a case for digital. Like, have you, been, have you gotten a chance to see werewolves by night? No, that was after watching Hocus Pocus that came up and I was like, Ooh, definitely watch it. Cause it's like, a, it's, it's, a, I think it's a little less than an hour. But there is a character in there, and I won't say what character it is. I'm sure, like, it's been talked about on social media and stuff. So, but just in case anybody hasn't watched it and they don't know that this character in particular is involved, but there is a pretty big character in that show that everybody just sort of assumed was digital because it's Marvel and that's what you do. But they actually had a practical version of it on set, which looks amazing. And then what they did is they digitally enhanced it because the practical character just wasn't able to push the physicality of what that character needed, you know, to the height. So then they, you know, were able to sort of take the actual creature and then kind of keep building upon the, the actual figure and like, and making it even better through digital means. So. I thought in the book, what a really beautiful aspect was from, you know, like the artist side of it was, you know, in, in, in a lot of the interviews, you know, you start talking to these cats and they're like, you know, I remember, you know, reading, you know, Famous Monsters of Filmland or, you know, Fangoria or some of the other, you know, makeup and effects. Yeah. And they want they, they started out by learning those old things and then building it with what was available at their time and building it up. And then comes digital. And every time and I've, and I've, and I've noticed this and, I, and tell me if I'm wrong, but every time that these artists talk about the digital they talk about it the way they talked about their childhood. Like yeah. whenever they talk about, um, in fact, I wrote it I wrote it down here. It was Dave uh, Grasso, did I get that right, Grasso? Um, when he met Aaron Sims doing digital work on uh, AI, um, he had a quote, uh, as an artist, uh, he, uh, artists change with the times. But every time they talk about it, they talk about it as if they're reading, you know, they're five years old reading Famous Monsters of Filmland, watching, you know, the Harryhausen like, kind of stuff. Like they, they, don't, they don't view it as this like thing that's I mean, they talk about how some people looked at it as it's coming to take their jobs because it did <laughs> you, you know, know like that's just yeah the harsh reality but the the ones that adapted to it they looked at it as if this um oh i had it, i had a name for it they had this like eternal youthful optimism towards it of like oh i can learn this to solve that yeah because a lot of them have this really cool it's all problem solving. How do we make this blood squirt out of someone's head? How do we make it look like, you know, their body's in half? Or how do we make it look like this, you know, decapitated head comes down and attaches to a body? Like, they all look at it through this, like, this this lens of wonder. And I just thought that was a really cool thing to see, you know, these kick-ass artists look at it. Especially when the majority of the, you know, the fans, they kind of just poo-poo it. And you're like, no, 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 no. It's actually, like, a really beautiful artistry to it. Like, it's got this, you know, how do we solve this through you know rolling up our sleeves and learning this program and blending it with it um it's just a really fascinating like kind of insight into like artistry you know yeah definitely and i think also too like for a while like when i was doing these interviews um you know i always sort of talk to people about that shift to digital because i mean i think there was a point like after jurassic park and as the 90s like went on 
more and more studios are like, oh, we can just do it digitally. We'll save time. We'll save money and all these things. Yeah. Um, you know, where I, a lot of the interviews I was doing was sort of asking people about digital. And then I kind of realized like, oh, that's just sort of the same old, same old. Um, but what I think is great now is like, I think because the industry itself has sort of evolved so much where now a lot of the filmmakers who are out there working, you know, and not even just filmmakers, like even like showrunners and things like that on TV, um, they're all sort of of this age where they grew up with practical effects. So they're the ones bringing them back, you know, and I think one of the biggest people that was, has always been a proponent of that is like somebody like James Wan, like where he knows the, where, where he needs to use digital, you know, and he knows when practical is going to work best. And he's, he's yeah. always been a guy who's like always pushed that somebody like Guillermo, uh, is another one, you know, especially because of the fact that he kind of, you know, comes from the world of effects, not even kind of. He does like he trained as a special effects artist in Mexico because that was the only way to be able to do the effects that he wanted to do for his movies was he just had to learn how to do it. And I think he, um, you know, basically would correspond with Dick Smith, you know, and I think it might have even been through the mail because I know I've had I've had artists who like would actually correspond with Dick through uh, faxing back in the day. Really? That was like the, the quickest way to get to him at that point. You know, if you couldn't get him on the phone and you had to like draw something to show him and things like that, um, you know, so I think right now we're sort of in this really great time of where so many directors are such huge fan of practical effects that they know the benefit of them and they recognize it. I honestly think that's why people are getting, you know, you're seeing a lot of artists really working a lot because I'll tell you, like sometimes chasing people down could take a while because everybody's working again. And probably in the late nineties, you know, in early two thousands, that really wasn't the case. Interesting. I have noticed that with a lot of movies coming out nowadays, um, practical effects are almost becoming a selling point again, a little bit. Like when they a movie are. comes out, you're like, Hey, I heard they use practicals on this. And you're like, really? Well, other than, what did they, what did they do on this one? That's awesome. I wish I could pretend that it was like the Wixen effect. That'd be nice. That could be good marketing, but no, I just think, I think that there's just like a, you know, I think because of stuff like the internet where people have sort of the access to it, I think they get to be able to sort of look into these things in ways that like when I was a kid, the only way I really got to do it was like, because I was buying Fangoria, right? you know, that was sort of my in- entry into it because, you know, I would go to the bookstore once a month and I would get my latest copy of fangoria and then i'd buy you know the latest copy of the babysitter's club because that's who i was as a kid <laughs> you know and the the people working at the uh, crown bookstore knew that my mom was cool with me getting fangoria so they never gave me grief oh that's cool and, uh, yeah they, it was just like i remember like the first couple times because like she, it was right by our grocery store so she'd give me like my 10 bucks or whatever and say go get your stuff and come back and meet me over at the store I remember the first time I tried to buy stuff and they were like, we can't sell you Fangoria. And so my mom came in, she's like, it's cool. It's fine. And so like, eventually like once a, a word sort of spread and I kept seeing the same people on like Saturdays, they just would let me buy it. It was fine. Um, <laughs> but yeah, you know, I think it's, it's having that access and I think being able to appreciate it. I think honestly too, like, you know, for as, as many not so great parts of social media, I do think like it's a really great way to sort of, showcase these kind of things in new ways like i love like you know being able to see like strange clips from like movies that i've just i've never seen before that somebody happened to like 
go down some deep dive on YouTube somewhere or off of somebody's website. And you're like, oh, here's this, you know, crazy making of from, you know, whatever movie from 1981 or something. And you're like, oh, that's interesting. I've never seen this before. Um, or even like, honestly, for me, it's like watching people like showcase all these like things that like I grew up experiencing as like some fun nostalgia trip, but I'm just like, <laughs> oh, okay. I'm not old. Um, Glad you had a blast. <laughs> yeah. Like somebody was like, I, I was, uh, saw like last night, somebody shared like this old ad with like when Adidas did like a campaign with like the monster squad movie. And it was, you know, they were like, the boys are back and they're wearing Adidas. And it was like all the monster squad wearing oh Adidas. My God. And I'm just like, yeah, I remember that. But I was just like, and everybody now is just like, <laughs> oh, look at this, this funny thing. And I'm just like, yeah, I lived it. <laughs> they, always, they always say, they always, they always, they always hammer it all to like, they're like, look at this super retro vintage. Yeah. And I'm like, like, oh hey, my yeah, God, yeah, yeah. I'm so vintage. That's Fi- Finding Nemo is still a new Disney Pixar film. Of no, we're not- <laughs> yes, of course. <laughs> and I, you know, I will say with the, with the, with the learning of makeup and effects, YouTube and, and TikTok have been pretty big because i remember uh when i first got my macbook when i graduated high school i was back in the day when like you know you'd still you know torrent things i remember one of them being <laughs> some of tom savini's books and, and i remember like looking through them and then and then looking on youtube for the same effects and it's like oh well this is way easier <laughs> like you have someone doing it step by step and i remember like the first the one the only makeup effect that i ever did i thought was really great was two-face and it was just saran wrap with purple thing on there um and someone who was really into Batman was like, "Whoa, that was really great!" And I was like, "YouTube, baby, that's <laughs> that's 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 where it's at." There was also reading this book. I I love the come. There's this there's just this camaraderie of awesomeness that everyone shares. Like there is this undeniable aspect of like if someone's working on something, they want to show someone else. They want to say like, "Hey, come over here and and look at this." And yeah, earlier we were talking about um how uh, uh shutters 101 scariest horror movie moments uh w- watching that you know they'll show a clip from american werewolf and cut to like you know greg nicotero being like you know we were watching that wondering how did they do that and and i was curious because in a lot of days now if there's this really cool effect everyone assumes it's just a digital effect yeah. because everything anything crazy you could just assume it's cgi we're back in the day you had to be like how did these wizards pull that off is there anything of recent that you watched where you thought, how did they pull this off? Huh? Okay. Let me, I know uh, that that's sorry. That is, that no, is, a, that's that okay, is a, there's like, a, there's a lot of really amazing things that I've seen over the years. Like for one, you know, I honestly think, um, the work in malignant, uh, that they did with, mm-hmm. um, the face, because it was just, it had like all of these servos and all of these controls had to live on the actress and like, somehow they hit it like on her really subtle like small frame um and like so it really brought the face to life like because it was the face itself was only partially digitally augmented so that it really was moving um so yeah that's one of them i i would say also too like something like possessor um just had some really fantastic moments of like gore like the uh, it's also one of those things where like i like to talk about things i'm like oh if somebody's listening and they haven't necessarily watched um i'm like oh but there's like the way that they're able to like just so subtly in a certain scene where somebody gets their head like stomped in like the cut between the actor and the prop like 
still it's so subtle that you I'm like I don't understand like how they hid that edit so well um but that was great um gosh what else um, was you know honestly I will say um even like something like Terrifier 2 which is out right now I've not seen I've not seen that but I've I, it's hard to not see those articles while people throwing up did you yeah, did you get close to spewing? no no, no, okay. no. <laughs> um I have an interesting relationship because one of the producers on that movie actually tried to end my career nine years ago but that's fine what? Um, I've covered it yeah it's fine it's my boss at my previous website that I worked at prior to Daily Dead um mm. But anyway, uh, so it's one of those like I was still a professional and I still covered it and everything. But I, I get there's no denying that the movie is pretty kick ass. I personally, from somebody living with an editor, there's a probably like 20 minutes of that movie I would have cut down. Um, but honestly, people are loving it and they're having fun with it. So like, if you want those extra 20 minutes, go for it. It's fine. <laughs> um, you know, it doesn't. It didn't ruin my experience. It was never dull or anything. Like it was just like I was like, oh my god, a two-hour, 18-minute slasher. Let's let's do this. And I was like, it never drags. But it, there's just like things I would have tightened a little bit. Right. Um, but what's crazy about those effects in that movie is that it it is actually Damien Leone, um, the director of the movie, doing them. Uh, really? which he, did, he did the effects on the first terrifier as well wow. um so that's why kind of movie took a little bit longer to put together is because he had had a shop um because i interviewed him and uh the gentleman who plays art um at fantastic fest and also chris jericho happened to be there as well and um but i talked to him about the effects because i there's no way i'm not gonna right. um and he said how he'd for the for the sequel he was like oh, i'm gonna hire a, an effects house you know, because I want to do this the right way. And then I think they sort of backed out because, I mean, the the effects in that movie are audacious. Like, it sets a new bar. It really does. Wow. Um, you know, for as much as I want to be a snarky person and she's like, rah, rah, rah. but there's no denying <laughs> it. Like, I get right. it. And I'm like, and honestly, as somebody who's been championing independent horror pretty much throughout my entire career, like, seeing the success of that movie has just been amazing because it's like, it's just really cool that like they're out there and being able to make so much noise and fans are really getting to enjoy it and have that moment. And like, and especially, you know, because I don't think we really had that. I think the, another one that kind of popped out was like during the pandemic was like uh, the wretched, which like unseated star Wars of all movies, because they'd brought that back to put drive-ins we're like this tiny little independent horror movie like usurped star wars as like the number one movie at the box office in 2020 i've never um, even heard of this one yeah it was like this little movie um i want to say i don't remember if it was dark sky or ifc that put it out uh, but it's a pretty oh, fun little okay. witch movie um that i was like i kind of went and i was like all right let's see what happens i was like oh that was actually pretty good um <laughs> you know i just like it's one of those like when you watch hundreds of movies you're like all right just show me something different and it does um, and I think it does it pretty well too. Um, but yeah, like I honestly, like when you, when I think about like people who are pushing the the standards for effects, like I would say like for all of the, the upcoming awards for like Fangoria and things like that, like, you know, if you, if you were to go against the effects and terrifier too, like that's just <laughs> ridiculous to me because the, there's some things in the, the, that movie where I'm just like, holy crap, I can't even believe they were able to pull it off and pull it off as well as they do. And it's just, it's audacious. Like I, I told Damien uh, Leon when I interviewed him, I'm like, you're a madman. Like, I can't believe that <laughs> you guys are able to do with this. This is ridiculous, but congratulations. So. 
I need yeah. to check that one out. I, but, I, but there is a scene where I'm like, I get when people, why people got squeamish. I didn't particularly, but I get why people got squeamish. But honestly, there's always been like these reports of people fainting or throwing up during certain movies. And like, I just, I, I don't need that to sell me on a movie. Have I know ever, it's cool for some folks because they want to challenge themselves. Right. But it's nothing that I've ever needed to sort of push me to go see a movie. Have you ever gotten queasy from a movie? You know, I did, but I don't know if it was just psychological because it's not a particularly gory movie. But honestly, the first time I saw The Human Centipede, I oh. I had such a visceral reaction to that movie. And again, it's not even particularly like gory or anything like that. Right. But like, I remember when it finished, like, because I saw it at Scream Fest and it had finished. And I literally like, I, I looked at my boyfriend and I was just like, I need a minute. I'm like, Give me a second. <laughs> like, I don't even know what it was, but it was just like that movie pushed buttons in me where I was just like, I was not expecting to do that. And I will tell you another movie that kind of did that to me this year. Um, and I don't know if you've seen it yet is Speak No Evil. No, I haven't seen that one. Whew. I, I, I had to go turn on something really happy and light after that movie. And again, when you watch so many movies for like your job and stuff, like you don't, you're just like, oh, okay, what, what really is this going to do? And that movie is very heavy and there has sort of these really nihilistic undertones to it, but not in a way that's like exploitative. It just, it's there to really screw with you and it does it extremely well. Wow. Um, but that's a movie that like, you know, I saw in January and I still think about probably at least once a week. It's no way. Yeah. So <laughs> it's on Shutter right now. So if you really need to get messed up, go watch it. I'm going to check that one out. That's, that's immediately going on the must watch. Because like the whole watch. time you're just thinking like everything is wrong. Why? What do what you like? No, don't trust anybody. Why are you doing this? And then you're like, oh my God, it just gets worse. <laughs> it just keeps <laughs> getting even more worse. It's just like, oh. And then at the end, you're like, oh, God, okay, all right. You know, you're like, I don't want to tell you I told you so, but I told you so. <laughs> so when you were writing um, writing uh, or doing these these interviews, was there anything that ever stood out to you that you kind of had to take a step back and be like, whoa, I didn't know that about the industry or that effect or that, that monster or that creature? Um, you know, I think for me, one of the biggest things that sort of came out of all of this um, and it sort of ties into what we what I did with book two is that like I you know through all of these different interviews that I've done with and especially because like I want to say like 77 of them or so are like from U.S. artists like I was able to talk to some artists from other places and things like that but I would say like at least 75 artists are here based in the United States throughout all of this and I would say at least 90 percent of all of those artists came through the shop of John Carl Beekler. And I guess it was one of those things, and it's funny because I just, uh, Friday 7th was on because AMC's doing a marathon today for Friday 13th. And like, you know, he's a guy that like I knew of because of like prison or Friday 7 and his work with troll movies and things like that. But like, I guess I never realized just how pivotal he was to the industry as a whole beyond his create like his actualized creations because every like all these people talked about like when they would start out his shop always had their door open to allow artists to come in 
and learn about the business, learn about all the different aspects of working in special effects and sort of hone their skills, build their portfolios. And then they would be able to move on and go to other shops. And some of the people would actually stay at John's shop for years. And it was one of those things where like, I wanted to talk to him years ago just because of who he is and, you know, just his body of work in general. And then once I realized just how extremely pivotal he was to just hundreds of careers over the years. And I was like, you know, when I, when I got to this point where like, I was moving forward with the series, I was like, John's gone now. Like we had, I'd actually reached out to him in 2016. Our, we just never quite aligned to be able to talk. And then he was gone. And I, I don't know if it was just because of all the health stuff he was dealing with, you know, and having to sort of, you know, all the, all the things he was dealing with at that time. Um, but we just never had a chance to sit down and have our conversation. Um, but at the same time, I didn't want that to stop me from celebrating him and his career because he deserved that. And so that was like, for this book a little bit, I've, I've kind of broken my structure a little bit. Um, and so I was able to collect a bunch of different interviews uh, about people talking about John and what he meant to their careers and things like that. And what he meant to them is, uh, you know, on a personal level, like why, why, for example, that's why Kane Hodder is in this book, but he's not an effects, you know, makeup guy, but he pretty much was like John's, you know, best friend and he was his confidant and the, the, you know, and being able to talk to him about that kind of stuff, you know, I just thought it was like a nice way to sort of celebrate him, even though he's not here to be celebrated. And so it was like getting to understand, like, because I think people like they'll go to IMDb and they'll just read the information or you go to Wikipedia and you just read the information and like have sort of the context for a lot of that information is kind of lacking. Um, right. And so I think for me, like over the years, talking to people and sort of learning more about the stuff that you're just not seeing, you know, when you're doing this kind of research, you know, outside of actually talking to somebody just help me really get a, a really great understanding for like everything. Um, you know, because it's like, for example, like I grew, you know, grew, grew growing up, like it was one of those things, like even before I started doing like the Stan Winston series where I'd just be like, oh, you know, Stan Winston created this and Stan Winston created that. And the reality was, is like, he probably did like the, the character designs or things like that. But like, there were these other guys who actually made these things happen. Right. You know, and so being able to kind of give people their due in that way um, was also something that became important to me. The further like I would go into researching and talking to people and stuff like that. So it really changed, you know, my perspective in terms of like how people got credited and things like that. Because like, especially way, way back in the day, like some movies, like you got two or three credits, but you'd have 20 people working on your crew. Like, how do you determine who actually gets credit? Well, that's a tough one. <laughs> yeah. You know, that's which is nice one. because you were able to like have more people fight to be able to get represented and like, you know, through union representation and things like that. So yeah, it was just, it's, it's all been like this huge learning process for me, you know, where it's just like, every time I talk to somebody new, like I, it's like, I learned something new. And I, that's honestly the experience I want people reading the book to have where every time they finish a chapter, I want there to be one moment where they're like, oh, I didn't know that. Or, oh, that's really interesting. I never heard that. Or I didn't know so-and-so worked on this. Like, that's what I want. Because I want people to come away 
not just reading things for the sake of reading things, but to actually feel like they're getting something from it, if that makes sense. Oh, it it's working. <laughs> oh, good. Okay. It's, well, that makes me feel better. No, you're absolutely nailing that because I feel the exact same way. Even even uh, just reading, like there was one of the artists who, uh, uh, oh, oh gosh, was working on Terminator 2 and wanted to go to set. And they're like, oh, you don't want to work with James Cameron. He's kind of rough. But then he went there and like he was talking about how like it was really rough. But like I felt that. And like, I don't know. I was just, I was just, I felt like I was That might have been Richard Landon. I'm trying to think if that was Richard Landon. I, I believe so. But I felt like I was experiencing their experiences through yeah. the book. And I don't know. It's like this weird kind of brain time travel kind of thing. That I mean, it's 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 working. <laughs> I can confirm. <laughs> I can confirm for you. Um, so with all the research, has this made you view movies any differently? Oh, totally, totally. It really has because it's like, and again, that's one of the things where like somebody if they're like complain about like the effects not being perfect, or if for example in certain shots people you know studios will go and like opt for doing digital like i don't i don't personally love digital blood digital mm -hmm. fire can go you know play in traffic for all i care but <laughs> the thing is when you're talking about movies you might have time constraints or budget constraints or things like that like i get it mm -hmm. you know what i mean like i personally would always love to see practical blood but if like if you have to like kill 20 people in one setup and then you probably have to film that setup at least two or three more times to get everything you need from it that's just something you really can't do you right. know if you're working on a like a on, a on a low budget or an independently produced movie and even some of the times when you're working in studio movies it's it's even hard to do mm -hmm. um you know so it's like i try to be a little more forgiving of that stuff i don't love it i'll never love it but i get it <laughs> you know right. um so you know it's like so that's why i always try to like give filmmakers sometimes the benefit of the doubt but i'll tell you when people do use the practical blood or like example like in fire sequences where i'm just like oh they really did burn that down like i'm like yes thank you for your commitment you know <laughs> I because i get it because i know yeah, exactly because it's like i like we were I, we were just watching the original child's play the other day and when uh eddie's apartment building blows up and stuff like that and i'm just like oh i can't even imagine what they would do today like trying right. to do that sequence because it's like one you can't really like uh blow up a tri-level apartment in the middle of chicago anymore like that um <laughs> especially with how so many of those neighborhoods have now been gentrified um over right. the years and stuff like that and then it's like so you know you just have like some sort of weird digital blow up but it's like also part of me is just like oh it'd be really cool if you could like pull off a miniature version and yeah. kind of go i wish i i love when people go back to relying on miniatures because for me that's also another like component of movie magic that i love are you on facebook i'm not oh. on facebook there's a oh well there's a, there's a group that i joined a practical effects group and it's like all these cats just like people oh, who've worked wow. in the industry and they, they actually just posted about i forget it might have been another james cameron film but about uh, a bridge blowing up with some cars in it and it's like this oh, that was the, probably true lies i think so yes and it's like all the crew like all the dudes just sitting on the bridge kind of like oh and like you know the cars are you know like two inches tall and they go and they blow it up but it like it's it always looks great yeah no i i love i love uh miniatures and stuff like that because i think it's just again i think that's another like kind of lost art form because i think people think it only pertains to like characters and creatures and stuff like that but it has so many different practical applications so when people use that stuff these days i'm like oh yes I'm like three stars immediately 
<laughs> bring back the matte paintings. Let's bring those. Right. Let's have well, a, and again, those you talk about Cameron. That's how he started. He was doing matte paintings for Roger Corman. That is incredible. Yeah. Oh my God. So. So yeah. My my last question for you. So big. We're both big big monster fans, and I've I've been wondering this question for the past few years. So we all know who, you know, the horror icons are that that have made it through the years. You know, Freddy, Jason, Frankenstein, Dracula, Mummy, all those, all those, all those, all those people. In your opinion, who is the newest newcomer into the movie monster? Who's going to stand the test of time? Because if I try to go back, I think Sam for Trick or Treat has made his made his little stand you know every year you see those little half-eaten suckers you know that kind of thing valak i feel like james wan has brought some some stuff in there but in your opinion who is who is the newest horror icon yeah it's interesting because i it with sam like it's it's been fun to sort of see that validation of like knowing in 2007 because i was i was fortunate enough to actually see trick-or-treat at scream fest that year Oh, it was, like, was like one of two screenings that they ever did in the movie before Warner Brothers decided they were going to bury it. And then we had to wait two years for it to come out on Blu-ray. Um, and me just knowing back then, I was like, this, this is an icon, like just ready in seeing him so embraced. And like, it's just, it, that to me is super cool. Like just to being able to like see him per- be able to like withstand the stupidity of a studio and like right. come back with a vengeance. Yeah. Um, it's interesting because it's like, it feels like a cheat to say penny, like Scar, uh, Sars, Pennywise, because like, regardless, I think, you know, clown, like that's, that was going to be a thing anyway, but I think his interpretation of it was able to completely separate itself from Tim Curry, which yes. is like an impossible feat. Because for me, nobody's ever going to be Frankenfurter. No one is oh. ever going to be darkness. Because <laughs> oh. it's Tim, it's Tim freaking Curry. Yeah, that's so a for tough... me to be able to separate yourself from the legacy of Tim Curry as Pennywise, which is still an amazing Pennywise. Yes. And to do something completely different, yet still iconic, like and seeing the kids the way that they've like embraced Pennywise over the years um, is pretty amazing. Um yeah. You know, and so that's pretty cool. And I, you know, honestly, we were talking about Terrifier too. I think Art the Clown's got a pretty good chance. I was curious. I, w- I was, I wondered if you were going to say that. If, I, if, they, if they can, if they can keep the momentum going. Cause like, honestly, like I remember years ago, them trying to sort of say like Victor Crowley was going to be the next one. They and tried I, real hard. <laughs> they, they tried real hard. Um, and that just never clicked. I just don't think that it, that character ever really got there. And I think Art's got a shot. You really? Know? That is a cool, that I, I can see that. Yeah. Now I got to now I got to bring Obama back to Terrifier two and see. see well, I think one they've got the the fa- the clown factor always works in favor because clowns are just inherently menacing and scary. Mm-hmm. Like I don't care how happy and wonderful they are, like there's still a thing of like there's somebody with their face painted under there. Like what's really going on beyond the the face that you're seeing? So you almost have like a character of two faces in a way. But I also think the way that like um, I think it's David. Thornton how or I might be saying that wrong um but the the yeah, actor, one of those like, names boom, boom, boom. Yeah, he's, got, he's got three names <laughs> yeah. so he's super you know he's got he's got a lot going on but I like because his character is a character that doesn't talk so it's all a, it's all a physically driven performance and there's something really like classic about that to me where like yeah. you just can't help but be like mesmerized by watching 
his movements and how he approaches victims and things like that um, in ways that we're just not really seeing these days. Um, yeah, so you can't, you can't half-ass it if you can't talk. Like you got you got to one hundred percent commit to that commit to that act. Like I'd I'd, I'd love to see malignants. Um, I can't believe I'm totally blanking on. I know. I, the whole time, I, like when we were talking about it, I'm like, "What is the name for the?" Yeah, I can't believe I'm blanking on the malignant. The, the uh, twin, technically. Yes. Oh my gosh! Why can't I think of it? Hold on, I got uh, it. Gabriel. Gabriel. Yes. Gabriel. Um, you know, and I think I mean I, it seems also too like they're really going to try with Valak. Um, yeah. Because I think they're doing another nun movie, which is interesting to me. Um, I agree with that statement. <laughs> yeah, I mean, honestly, like Annabelle is kind of really, you know, I think you could do another Annabelle movie and people would watch it. I, although I'm still waiting for the payoff from Annabelle Comes Home of the werewolf because we get it in that movie. And I was like, yes, we're doing werewolves. And then we don't get to do werewolves. I have, um, we have a theory that only one good werewolf movie per decade. That's the that's the law. <laughs> For some reason, it always it always turns out that way. There's a, there's a couple runner ups, but it's usually like the one where you're like, okay, yeah, that's the that's the one for the for the decade. Yeah. So um, yeah, so I you know I think there's a lot of potential, and I think honestly too for me, what's been really fun over the last few years is to really see the resurgence of Chucky, because I think honestly, out of all of the classic '80s horror icons. Um, I mean, Michael to a degree, but he's 70. So I'm going to separate him a little bit because he kind of came up a little bit before. But I think in terms of like the Freddy Jason, and I really don't even think Leatherface kind of came into his own until the 80s either, um, until yep. Texas Chainsaw 2, because I think in the 70s, those kind of characters were viewed differently, where in the 80s, it was all about like, how do we market these characters and sell it to audiences? So sort of out of like the marketable characters it's just interesting to me to see how chucky has really like endured for almost four decades yeah you know that, that show too yeah I and he's that. more popular now than ever which is bananas to me but it's awesome like last year we for halloween we always go to this music festival which is kind of it's mostly like 20 somethings going so I think when we walk in, like everyone's like, "Oh, where are your kids?" <laughs> like, or or oh, are you no. narcs? You know, narcs. so it's fine. You know, it's <laughs> no. fine, whatever. Um, but last year there was so many people dressed up as Chucky. Wow, and it was amazing, and we actually saw a few Tiffany's too, which was super cool. That's kick-ass. Yeah, because now you know that's like a deep cut where they're like mm -hmm. they're so into it, like it's not just Chucky, and it's like it's you know it's Tiffany too. Um, so just to see like the resurgence of Chucky in this whole new way over the last few years has been really awesome for me. That's not you know, because I grew up completely terrified of Chucky because I grew up with cabbage patch kids and oh, like, yeah, a bunch that's of my terrible. friends had the, my buddy dolls. And I was just like, Oh no, like this is awful. And, yeah, I, and I grew up in the suburbs of Chicago. So it was like, oh, you were there. Just, yeah. I was just waiting for Chucky to come and get me at some point. I knew it. He was coming, you know, even um, the, uh, the child's play like reboot, I guess you would call it. Yeah, the remake. Yeah, I, I, I personally kind of dug it. I liked. I, I yeah, loved I, it actually. Yeah, go, go, I was a big ahead. fan. Yeah, I, I'm actually quoted on it, <laughs> <laughs> and that's a badge of honor for me. Like, I just, I, I really liked that story. I liked the approach of it. I liked how they really sort of based this character in sort of this like guy with a grudge programs an evil doll. I loved Mark Campbell's approach to the character. 
Mm-hmm. And that song, like I sang it for like three months straight, <laughs> you know, so and, I, I didn't really have a problem with it. Like, I, I wish they would have named it something a little different because Child's yes. Play fans got mad, but they owned the name Child's Play. So what are you going to do? I, and, you know, it's probably one of those things where like, well, we got to make a movie or, you know, it's probably <laughs> you always hear about like we got to make something. We lose the rights. But exactly. even them, even the doll learning aggression through human microaggressions. I thought was I was like that's really yeah. genius. Like yeah. you know, it's not the serial killer thing, but it's not trying to be. You know, it's yeah. trying to be this Frankenstein misunderstood kind of angle. And I was like, that's really unique for the Chucky. You know, yeah, world. no, absolutely. Also, in that scene when like the head was like wrapped up like a present, I was just like that entire <laughs> sequence. I'm just like, I'm on pins and needles because it's like, oh my god, the payoff. And then it's like they just keep toying with you. Um, so yeah, I actually really liked the Child's Play remake, but I liked it for different reasons than why I love. The Chucky franchise, if that makes sense. Well, there's it, being that you like the Chucky franchise, I because we were, before we started recording, you know, we were talking about Halloween stuff, and 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 uh, I just watched uh, Hocus Pocus two. They do a, a thing with technology, and I won't spoil anything, but they do a thing with technology in Hocus Pocus two that I think you'll really appreciate, and they haven't have a good payoff, and it's it's a it's a testament to pretty pretty damn good writing, I think. I think you're gonna, I think those two somehow will connect in a weird way. Interesting. Well, I'm wondering, too, if that's probably because of the Tony Gardner effect, because he does Billy Butcherson. Yes. And he's basically been Chucky since Seed of Chucky. His his um, daughter is like really Kira. popular on TikTok. Yes, Kira is. Uh, in fact, my my friend who I wanted to inter- uh, introduce you to Haunting Season just had her on his show. Uh, they are like the they're like the coolest family ever. Like, when yeah, you hear about their history. Yeah, yeah, Tony's in the first book. He was actually, he's probably one of the longest interviews I did because I think we talked for like four and a half hours collectively. Um, (laughs) And it it was funny because actually when Kira's documentary uh, Living with Chucky was playing at Fantasia, like he texted me, he's like, because we had talked about her doing her documentary as part of her like film school thing. And he was like, Mm -hmm. oh, you know, she was able to put together like a full documentary. Like, would you want to talk to her? I was like, oh, yes, of course. (laughs) Um, And so being able to sort of see them celebrated in that way. But it was just fun because like for me, like I was I always thought it was really cool, like in Seed of Chucky, where Tony basically got to kill himself. And it wasn't like him playing a character. He's really himself in the movie, um, which is pretty awesome in in a lot of ways. Because I think he's like, the only actual special effects guy to get killed in a movie. That is playing himself. <laughs> so, um, but yeah, they're they're amazing people. Living with Chucky is really great too. Like it's, I uh, I said to her, I'm like, how have we not had a Chucky doc at this point? Like, yeah, it's just weird to me. Everyone's um, got one. Yeah, you know, I mean, we've we've had some like sort of deeper cuts in terms of movies where I'm like, oh, we're doing a documentary about this. Yeah, like we, a couple years ago, we had uh, the guys who did Unearthed and Untold. It's like a pet cemetery documentary. Like that—that that happened before Chucky. <laughs> like, how did that? How did that happen? Yeah, and it's and that's nothing against pet cemetery, but it's not like you know, people are running around in church, you know, church cat <laughs> costumes or yeah, anything. No. So. They're not slicing their Achilles. Be like, hey, remember that? <laughs> yeah, remember that one? Well, I could talk your ear off for another several hours. <laughs> about anything horror but I, I want to be mindful of your time so monsters makeup and effects volume two uh where can people buy this uh give, give us the deets uh yes so um it will be out october 26th and um you can order it from the publisher's website over at am inc uh it's that's inc and then publishing.com 
and it's under their dark ink tab so that's where all like the horror stuff lives and then also of course it's uh available on amazon and barnes and noble and the first one was actually um on both target and walmart's websites too which was like for some weird reason kind of like super geek out moment for me i'm like wait really like you kind of you know amazon puts everything up there and like Barnes and Noble. Okay. That's amazing. Cause it's like a bookstore kind of thing. But I was like, wait, I'm on target site. That's so strange. <laughs> um, so maybe they'll, it'll make it over to there in the future as well. Um, but I do think it might actually be a couple dollars cheaper from the publisher's website directly. So I always tell people, if you can go there, go there. Cause also too, it benefits the publisher a little, uh, a little more directly as well. Um, than going through Amazon. So, um, you know, if because you do buy it through Amazon, you, you better, you better review it. Those reviews, yes. are, those reviews are gold. <laughs> I don't think people understand like how much those reviews help in terms of like your ranking and stuff like that. And it's like, I'm almost at the point where I'm like begging people I'm like, please just, just put some stars or something. Like, even if you hate it, it just, because it just helps with the getting, you know, being able to like get better, like placements on there and stuff like that. I don't think they understand. And honestly, every time I buy a book or I read a book or anything like that. I'm always conscientious of doing those reviews because I just know how much they matter. Yeah. A review, it goes, it's, it's free and goes a long way. It really, really does. It really does. Perfect. Well, thank you so much for taking the time. Uh, Monsters Makeup and Effects, go buy it, make sure you review it. And uh, yeah, have a great, have a great Halloween, everyone. Re I, I usually end with stay scary, watch a bunch of horror movies, but now recently it's stay scary, read a bunch of horror books. So we got to get you, <laughs> get your, get your reading caps on. <laughs> Thank you so yes. much, Heather. Thank you. Thank you.